Hello and welcome to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast at the University of Dundee. I'm Paul Feeney and today I'm discussing decolonisation and post-colonialism in the African continent with Dr Frank Gertz and Dr Matteo Grilli. Frank is an assistant professor in the history of international relations at Utrecht University with a particular focus on the ideologies of post-colonial Africa. Matteo is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of the Free State in South Africa focusing primarily upon the political history of Ghana and Southern Africa, as well as the history of Italian communities across Africa. Together, they have edited a new book, Visions of African Unity, New Perspectives on the History of Pan-Africanism and African Unity Projects, charting the rise and fall of the struggle for African unity through a series of essays by scholars of post-colonial Africa. Matthew and Frank, thank you so much for joining me. Just to begin with the book, could you provide a brief overview of kind of what this book entails and tell us why you thought it was important to provide these um, new perspectives on Pan-Africanism and African unification? Thank you very, very much for inviting us to this uh, talk. Uh, we are very excited to present this book. It has been a, a three year long uh, type of work. So it's, uh, it's finally out and we are very relieved of this. Uh, it was an exciting um, uh, endeavor, and, uh, but it was difficult nonetheless. Anyways, uh, th this book uh, came out of uh, a discussion between me and Frank back three years ago about the need for some new scholarship about the history of, uh, of Pan-Africanism in its concrete application in the African continent. Because, you know, there is plenty of books about Pan-Africanism as an ideology and the history of Pan-African thought, etc. But if you go into uh, its concrete application, its uh, concrete, uh, you know, uh, put into action of African independence, uh, African post-colonial regimes, etc., you know, there is scholarship, of course, but uh, there is not so many comprehensive dialogues between scholars, especially in the last years. I think the, the, the last major uh, book about uh, the history of uh, the OAU, for instance, uh, dates back to 1997, if I'm not mistaken. So the idea basically was, uh, OK, there is a number of people working on the history of the OAU, the history of uh, how Pan-Africanism was put into practice in, uh, in the uh, anti-colonial movements, uh, in uh, African post-independence regimes, etc., etc. Some people work on the history of the AU and the passage between the OAU and AU, but what about putting all of them together into conversation to talk about major issues of, like the, the role of uh, uh, Pan-Africanism in uh, African development, uh, in uh, African liberation, in the Cold War as uh, an opposing ideology, for instance, to the two competing uh, ideologies of capitalism and uh, communism in Africa, because of course it played a role in this, and uh, how it's still, Pan-Africanism still is present in uh, today's African politics. So we wanted to discuss all these issues, the, the most people's possible, into conversation. Yeah, that ambition in itself was rooted in our particular uh, situation at that point in time. Myself and Matteo had ended up at the University of the Free State in South Africa as non-African researchers at what is called the International <laughs> Studies Group, which is a, which is a very ambitious a very successful research group now in South Africa. And we were confronted with 
exciting research uh, on the African continent that wasn't being put into dialogue with the research that was happening in Europe and the US. The most important thing that we wanted to do in this edited volume was put these things together, give African scholars, European scholars, and US scholars an opportunity to talk to one another and consciously think about how and the use of new African sources was actually changing our way of thinking about African unity as a project. It wasn't simply putting scholars together. It was, you know, there was also a conscious effort to inject a lot of the, the energy that comes out of African scholarship in our broader conversation about African unity. When you mentioned um, the International Studies Group and you obviously bringing European studies towards the African scholarship. How do you find your perspective of coming to it from a kind of European perspective shaped the, the African scholarship in a way? Um, I mean, I think, and I think Matteo will agree with me, I think the um, we get the most mileage, intellectual mileage out of uh, trying to understand the, the African perspective in the different types of research that we do. So um, I, uh, if I'm talking about my own research, uh, I'm specifically looking at how African diplomats in the 50s and 60s uh, understood the international system and how that understanding of the international system trickled down into uh, European and American diplomacy. My entire research focuses on sort of writing Africa-centered international history. Uh, I would argue that African decolonization in the 50s and 60s is the biggest event in international history uh, happening at that point in time. Uh, Asia is uh, thoroughly decolonized. Latin America also already has its decolonization in, uh, in the 18th, 19th century. The biggest issue on the table in the 50s and 60s is African decolonization. And trying to understand how the African perspective uh, and, and we can consciously talk about, about an African perspective because all these African politicians that talk about an African polity over and over again is something that also comes back in our, in our edited volume. Perspective, this, this um, celebration of African is how that influences international politics. That's what I'm interested in. And I think Matteo has a similar, has, has a similar uh, interest, right? Yeah, 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 of course. Of course, uh, but uh, to, to go back to your question, I, I wanted also to talk a little bit about uh, African scholarship and uh, European scholarship today, uh, because it also uh, came out during the, the work for the book. Of course, you have uh, advantages and disadvantages on both sides. So, so for, um, an African perspective on uh, the history, for instance, of an Africanism in Africa, of course, is important, but there are limits uh, to the African scholarship in it uh, being underfunded uh, and uh, having difficulties in assessing uh, those archives of the Northern Hemisphere, which are essential for an international history. So uh, on the mm. basis of all our work is this conception of international history. Of course, you want to use uh, as many archives as possible, as many countries involved as possible. And uh, we noticed that for many uh, young and very, very bright African scholars, the difficulty is economic, of course, like logistic. They cannot access the same amount of archives that um, scholars in the non-hemisphere can. On the other hand, they have an easier access to some of the sources in the African continent, and they have a unique perspective on uh, maybe the African thinking. They, they can have a point of view which is unique compared to European scholarship. On the other hand, some European scholars also don't know too much about how to use those instruments. Yeah. They have the, the advantages in, uh, in going and finding out about post-colonial archives in Africa. So 
one of the goals of our book was also to show how uh, in order to do a good international history of the African continent, you have to know your archives in uh, the African continent as well. Because sometimes diplomatic history in Africa is made out of like searching uh, sources in uh, very small archives uh, scattered all around and uh, sometimes uh, hardly accessible, like even endangered and uh, not easy to assess. So there, there is a number of uh, practical issues other than, uh, you know, uh, theoretical consideration to take into account. So I think... Our attempt was also to put in conversation the African scholarship, African scholars and European scholars also for them to exchange their perspectives, theoretically speaking, but also the resources they can use for their research. It was the main yeah. reason we were so keen to include uh, Chetsomo Lefe's uh, essay. She's the uh, archivist of the African Union uh, archive in, in Addis in Ethiopia, and she wrote an, an excellent uh, contribution on how they are reorganizing the archives. You know, that's, that's sort of a clear example of our commitment that comes with this edited volume that really wants to make the case for using African archives in a theoretically well-thought-out context. Can you talk about, just a touch more on using African archives and, and the kind of sources that you found there um, and the difference with using... Um, say, European archives. Can you talk a bit more about that? I'd say that, as I mentioned before, I think that sometimes uh, um, uh, post-colonial African archives are not as organized, mm. as uh, easily accessible as European archives. So if you go to Kew Gardens to access the diplomatic uh, history of the British Empire, you will find a very organized and, uh, you know, uh, well-preserved uh, documentation, which you can use uh, fairly easily. It's not very difficult to do your research, uh, uh, for instance, at the National Archives in the UK. But if you go to uh, archives, uh, for instance, in Ghana, Tanzania, or Kenya, etc., you may uh, face very difficult situation in which the foreign policy section, let's say, of an archive is not easily recognizable, is not well kept. Uh, sometimes diplomacy, and I think this is one of the subjects of uh, um, Frank research but, and mine as well. Sometimes African diplomacy is also pressed through non-traditional um, means of diplomacy. Mm. So sometimes you have to uncover some strange type of sources in order to understand probably the, 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 the foreign policy of an African country because they used uh, sometimes uh, non-formal diplomacy. Another thing is the importance of uh, uh, primary sources and as uh, oral sources as well. So uh, of course, when you, when you want to do some history of uh, diplomacy in Africa, you have to uncover some uh, informants among like former diplomats or uh, activists, etc. So that is important as well. I think it's just a, a kind of a different job from uh, the one you do in a European archive. It's just uh, you have to know your thing. You have to uh, gain some experience in understanding all these small nuances, understanding how each African state was performing its foreign policy in, uh, in, uh, in its peculiar way how to uh, find your sources and sometimes to find them uh, in very uh, difficult situations in which archives are not well kept. Again, they may be scattered around uh, different organizations. You have to uncover them uh, uh, sometimes even like bribing people. <laughs> I mean, like uh, you have to uh, literally digging into bureaucracy and such things in order to get, gain access 
to this uh, material. Yeah. The best document I found for my own research on Nkrumah's uh, diplomacy uh, was stuck in between two letters that dealt with um, with a broken toilet in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, right? Yeah. So it's that type of, of discovery uh, that that really drives me to keep. I mean, drives me to keep going back uh, because you can find documents that you just can't find anywhere else. Because this disorganization often is also an opportunity. It's an opportunity because people have not vetted the archives as closely as you would have expected, right? There's sort of this opposition that we have between the European archive is very organized and then uh, the, African, the African archive is very disorganized. I mean, there are two things that I want to say about this. One, uh, I don't think this is always the case. Uh, the Belgian foreign affairs archives, uh, up until last summer, were very difficult to access, were very tough, uh, very poorly organized, and are covered in mold. So there's this, this program now to uh, treat the colonial archives, right? The, the Belgian archives as they relate to uh, Congolese colonization. Those are treated for mold now, right? Is that is that is that on the status of a well-organized European country? I don't think so. While the Kenyan archives and the Zambian archives up until a certain date are very well-organized, uh, you just have to have the economic means to get there. And I think that that is a big, big issue. Uh, the second thing about the use of African archives is I would argue that it's very important that you, as a historian, reflect on how the discovery of documents or the use of the documents you get from African archives or extra European archives, non-European archives, actually changes your conclusions, changes what you want to argue, uh, fundamentally shapes your topic. Because one of the things I'm very unhappy with is uh, research that actually just works with European archives and then goes to a non-European archive to essentially confirm what you found in the European archive. I always compare this with what happened at the end of the Cold War when, uh, the, when the Soviet archives opened up and historians who had worked on the Cold War without having access to the Soviet archives took their conclusions that they had formulated in the 80s and then went to the Soviet archive and confirmed what they had already written. Right, which they didn't sufficiently reflect on how, how the, the Soviet perspective had changed their understanding of international history. And I think this is, this is the main challenge for the future, and this is also the challenge that we put in the book, is if you want to write genuine global history, if you want to write genuine international history, you have to have the theoretical flexibility to genuinely reflect on how the archives that you're going to use that aren't located in Europe, how they fundamentally change the dynamics of the international history that you're writing. Um, you touched on some really important points there. Most importantly, that in the, I suppose, both the theoretical and the practical application of taking in these histories, it needs to be in as, as wide a franchise as possible. And I think that's where the book uh, really comes in effectively, is that you've got uh, this range in um, both where scholars are from, but also their kind of pretenses and arguments and stuff like that all kind of coming together and coalescing within the book. Um, and as well, I think that's where the importance of institutions like the International Studies Group uh, comes in as well, because it's a real kind of sharing ideas and uh, of people across different countries and cultures, but then also sharing, like you said, practical tips on how to use archives in uh, African countries, and then also taking apart some of maybe our preconceptions about using archives in African countries or stuff like that. So, so yeah, that seems, that's really fascinating. Just, sorry, I would just add uh, a last thing we, we, we noticed uh, uh, about African scholarships. 
another limitation for African scholars, uh, if I have to be honest, that we noticed uh, through the process of, you know, the uh, sending out the proposal for the book and, uh, you know, uh, looking at the submissions, etc., cetera, uh, is that sometimes uh, African scholars are, um, they have to face an enormous, I mean, lack of funds on the one side, and then uh, an enormous amount of teaching they have to uh, uh, endure, say. Uh, so uh, sometimes African scholarship is not, it's looked a, a bit, you know, um, um, it's deemed sort of inferior to the European scholarship just because there, there are limitations in that, for instance, the use of, uh, uh, of uh, primary sources, which is uh, based not only, uh, you know, I, I, I'd say, absolutely not on lack of uh, capacity, uh, lack of um, um, understanding of how to, to be a, a, a good historian on their side. I think African scholars are tremendously uh, good in uh, doing history. The problem is that sometimes they don't have the time, they don't have the resources to go on the field. Paradoxically, even if they are so close to their sources, they sometimes don't have that time because they are, uh, there is not much money. And so the few that have jobs in the academia, they are operated with work. They are, they, they are, they have this problem with. And uh, my thinking is that uh, uh, this should come out as a, a call for European historians to help their peers in, a, in the African continent, exchange more resources on both sides in order to both sides to, to gain in experience, in opportunities, etc. I think uh, there is this big problem between the global south and the northern hemisphere and this sort of uh, accessibility to type of sources, etc. And uh, well, that would be my thinking. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's mutually beneficial on all accounts. It definitely richens yeah. the work that uh, you do and that they do and uh, history more generally. Taking this sort of Afrocentric approach, then um, I want to talk a bit about Pan-Africanism, um, as that seems to be the kind of overarching theme of uh, African unification and the OAU and later the AU. So I, I know it's a really ambiguous and self-identified concept, but can you give your opinions on what you think the key dimensions of Pan-Africanism are? I might uh, start just by saying that, uh, as we, we, we mentioned in the introduction, and Pan-Africanism is a very vague term because from uh, some scholars it's defined as uh, a general, a general uh, movement of ideas and emotions, just to cite one of the most famous definitions by Colin Legum. And uh, uh, so it's not rooted in one single like ideologue or one single uh, theoretical framework, but it's more like the result of uh, some uh, events that happened to the African people, uh, people of the African diaspora, etc. Just quoting again from Kali Langum, he says that originally, if we consider the a wider definition of Pan-Africanism, it originated uh, in uh, um, problems like dispossession, slavery, and uh, it's living persecution, inferiority, discrimination, and dependency. So in a sense, it was born out of a, a sort of a reaction to uh, some of the, the, the worst thing that happened to the people of African stock as defined by uh, Colin Legum uh, during uh, the previous centuries. And it emerged in particularly in the late uh, 18th century as this movement of reaction to these problems. But then uh, it was born basically in the anti-slavery activism um, framework, let's say. 
But then I'd say that in the 20th century, it became more and more active through, with the years passing by. And it became a, a very useful tool for a number of, of uh, other uh, endeavors like anti-colonial activity, liberation struggle, and then uh, post-colonial development projects, uh, uh, nation building, etc., etc. So it became more and more ideological and practical, let's say, tool for African people and people of African descent, of course, but then uh, this book uh, is primarily uh, focused on the African continent. Not that we don't uh, acknowledge the importance of the African diaspora, but uh, this book is particularly concerned with the concrete application of Pan-Africanism in Africa. So I'd say that in the 20th century, we see uh, Pan-Africanism become more and more active, which doesn't mean that it becomes one single ideological tool or, uh, uh, or political tool, but it's still like divided in, uh, in uh, very different interpretations. But then it became more and more sort of uh, used concretely in African politics. And so we have this passage from conferences, from uh, you know, very intellectual discussions to the phase of politics. And actually, it, it's not only during the phase of uh, independence, it's not only uh, limited to intellectual discussion, indeed, uh, but it's actually applied concretely even in independence politics, because sometimes, uh, as also underlined by Frederick Cooper, the uh, international dimension, the Pan-African dimension, sometimes uh, uh, supersedes, uh, uh, it's more important to some African leaders than the nation states. So it is... It is it was really important in the independence process. Sometimes uh, a few leaders uh, decided to go with Pan-African projects while they were still fighting for independence. One example, for instance, is the Mali Federation, which is created even before the independence of Mali and Senegal, because the Pan-African dimension is actually, in their minds, is more important than the nation state itself. So I'd say that, uh, again, it's not only a very big ideological discussion. It's a discussion about international politics. It becomes a question of how to uh, organize the post-colonial post-colonial Africa, basically. I mean, I think our, our key intervention, our key uh, histor- historiographical intervention in this debate pertains to the fact that neither international historians nor uh, Africanists uh, have genuinely sort of explored the international dimension of, of Pan-Africanism as a, as a political project. What do I mean by this? Well, uh, the Pan-African project is often conceptualized as a, a project that failed and also as a project that was ultimately mainly about resistance. Uh, and so the, the ideological contents of that and uh, if, if this ideology shaped international relations and to what extent it shaped international relations is never really genuinely considered. And I think what we what we wanted to do with the book is really sort of flesh out the the theoretical and multifaceted uh, aspects of the Pan African Project to show that this fully fledged uh, ideology actually did shape a, a lot of the debates that people were having around the world in the 50s and 60s. Pan Africanism becomes more political uh, in the 20th century. I think our claim is that you have to take a very maximal view of that argument becomes very influential. It shapes international relations up to extent that still requires a lot of research to figure out how these how these things fit together. I suppose when you're saying there about how it shaped international relations, the contemporary singular narrative, if you will, uh, is that African decolonization was shaped by 
the interests of the Cold War powers and the the former colonial states. Um, so decolonization occurred in congruence with whatever the previous colonial powers wanted economically and politically for the African continent, as well as uh, the sort of business interests and ideological interests of the Cold War powers. Would you agree with that sentiment or do you think that uh, African leaders had uh, much more agency in redirecting the, the aims and interests of both the Cold War powers and the previous colonial powers? My conceptualization of Pan-Africanism is that it should be viewed as an alternative route to modernity. It should be viewed as an alternative modernization project. And this is, I mean, this was this was generally, an ex- this was an accepted notion in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein uh, writes in his, in his books about how a Pan-Africanism is a type of modernity that needs to succeed. And if, if the Pan-African project fails, uh, that would mean that would mean the debt knelt to the to the modernization project run by Africans uh, in uh, on the continent. So my my whole argument is that uh, yes, there is uh, there is a, there is a Cold War competition, but the way you should conceptualize international relations is you have to look at uh, imperial modernity, communist modernity, capitalist modernity, and then the Pan African modernity that is being developed at the same time. Um, so that's that's my very um, short definition of how uh, Pan-Africanism shapes international relations. Uh, Matteo published a book on Nkrumah's diplomacy, so I'm sure he can weigh in on this. No, of course, of course, we have a project like the one of Kwame Nkrumah becoming some uh, sort of uh, a major project for the whole continent, because uh, indeed, as uh, mentioned by uh, Frank as well, a project like uh, Nkrumah's one cannot work only for Ghana. Ghana is just, uh, you know, one of the steps towards uh, a, a, a wider goal, and this is theorized already by the 19, late 1940s by uh, George Padmore as well. So this is a long discussion that is made among uh, Pan-Africanist, radical Pan-Africanist like circles. I'd say that it's deeply rooted in African socialism as well. They they go together very much in the sense that African socialism sometimes uh, it's connected with African socialism by, by, by uh, definition. And uh, again, African socialism, um, together with uh, Pan-Africanism, uh, plays uh, uh, against the, the two uh, sides of the Cold War as well. It tries to, to stay away from um, uh, this sort of divide of the post-colonial uh, situation in Africa. Uh, so Pan-Africanism uh, absolutely becomes uh, a, a, an important tool for, uh, for uh, the, the entire continent for the success of this modernization project. We have on the one side, uh, as mentioned by Frank uh, uh, Nkrumah, who wants to go forward with this project in a very quick manner with a political sort of union. We have other leaders that don't think so. For instance, we have Nyerere, who prefers a regional approach and uh, to go towards Pan-Africanism through uh, a series of uh, smaller federations, which will eventually like uh, unite together. So I I think one of the one of the key things that the book wants to do is really stress this point that Pan-Africanism was an interventionist globalist ideology uh, that had an impact that went beyond Ghana that went beyond the nation states of Africa, that went beyond the continent. Um, 
I mean, what you really see, and this is really where the research should go. What you really see in the in the in the fifties and sixties that is sort of this idea of of unification, this these pan movements, and and the Pan African Project itself inspire revolutionary movements around the world in the fifties and sixties. There's also this whole notion, this uh, admiration for Nerere's African socialism. Uh, in Europe, where where socialism, where the socialist project is in need of a revitalization, right? All these sort of connections we know exist, but we we haven't really figured out, you know, what the what the precise relationship is between all these movements. And I think one of the things we put on the table with the book is we say, look look at Pan Africanism in its its many many iterations. Uh, but do take away the point that this is a project that goes beyond the continent, and and inspires a lot of other people. Why do you think Pan-Africanism and um, African modernity isn't put on the same pedestal as, say, Western ideas of modernity or the communist I- ideologies of the time? Why why is um, Africa seen as something different to that in, in contemporary historiography? I would argue that the the um, the seventies and the eighties, so the World Bank programs, you have an entire generation of historians. Uh, that has shaped uh, our our thinking about international history uh, and about Africa that started out their careers in you know in the 80s uh, in the 90s when uh, when Africa wasn't particularly the beacon of influence you would think it is uh, or, or at least sort of the the inspiring example it was in the 50s and 60s and, and since history is always shaped by the present up to a certain extent uh, this this notion this notion that African uh, history is not self-evidently connected with the global stems right from this third worldism moment uh, this moment that uh, that Africa is shackled by World Bank debt and I think you can see this most clearly in uh, Alt Arnie Westhead's book The Global Gold War because in his uh, we all read introductions right we love reading introductions because it, it connects us to the author right so I love reading those introductions and those prefaces uh, and he he consciously mentions being present at a at a rally in Mozambique or Angola um, where this this social protest to get more social rights and Mozambique is sort of in the and Angola are in the in the thrall of of a continuing civil war uh, and he he therefore automatically connects this with uh, with communist modernity and capitalist modernity because Mozambique and Angola are ideal test cases for the point he wants to make uh, but of course this is the 80s right this is the 80s and the 70s this isn't the 50s and the 60s which were a very different time and Krumah in in the 70s and 80s was not I mean was not seen as an example to follow right he was he was sort of seen and he's still seen today I think as sort of a naive dreamer in in the realm of politics politics and an area of life that wants to uh, make or materialize ideas in that realm of life uh, that is not the person you want to be right you want to be uh, you want to be if you want to be an example in politics you want to be someone who gets things done rooted in an ideology that inspires you don't want to be an ideology that inspires but did, didn't get anything done and that was the reputation that Nkrumah had up until the 80s, 70s, 90s. And I think only now in the research, we're beginning to understand that Nkrumah's ideas had an impact that that was much more complex. So uh, putting Africa on back burner when we're researching global history uh, is incorrect, but it's understandable seeing where this historiography comes from. And I think we as a younger generation of scholars are beginning to rethink a lot of this 
for two reasons. One, we're living in a globalized age in which you can see that a lot of these countries are establishing a middle class of their own, uh, South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, right? Um, all these, all these uh, societies are becoming hyper-connected with, with the rest of the world, or they are already. Um, and now we're beginning to see that this was always the case. And the second thing is that uh, me and Matteo, uh, we, we are going to uh, African uh, universities to go and do research. We want to be employed there. We want to have that connection with African scholars because we genuinely uh, embrace the, the ideas and conceptions they have of, of international history and global history. So, I, I mean, I think in that sense, uh, the book and the, and the work that we want to do is, is uh, offering us an opportunity to really rethink where we want to position Africa in how we think about international history and the global. Uh, I was just thinking that one of the reasons why I think Nkrumah still has a large following and uh, in, a, in a sense, the whole Pan-Africanist movement to this day is that I think that if indeed, as uh, Frank underlined, uh, Nkrumah showed some kind of failure in the concrete application of Pan-Africanism, his analysis of the basis upon which Pan-Africans had to be built, I think they are still relevant to this day because if one reads through Nkrumah, he seems to have been... Uh, quite a profit for uh, the development of the African uh, economics in the wider international markets, uh, you know, struggle for uh, survival in the international markets, uh, even uh, one, if one goes back to the 1950s and the letters that George Farmer exchanged with Nkrumah, they were talking about a sea in which Ghana will be a small fish in the midst of sharks, etc. So this uh, vision of the, the African countries have been created uh, as weak and uh, uh, capable only of being exploited by colonialist powers uh, on purpose. So uh, colonies being created to be weak. And so they Nkrumah theorized that they could not survive uh, the, the international system, both like strategically, military, etc., but also economically. Integration is necessary at least to face the uh, challenges of the international market. So I think, in a way, uh, Nkrumah is always defined as a naive person, but in fact, uh, he was well aware of the emergence of this gigantic uh, protagonist of the, uh, in the international market. And I think he also uh, he was very aware of the debates uh, uh, happening also in Europe about the uh, European market, etc. And the way that Europe as well was aware of the difficulties facing the small uh, European nations in a growing continental-wide uh, markets fighting each other. So I think those dimensions of Pan-Africanism in the in the Nkrumah's in interpretation, uh, they are still very relevant to this day because they talk uh, to us about uh, the role of Africa in the international stage uh, from very various perspectives, etc. It's not even just that ideologically these African leaders had a, a real influence on international politics. Um, people like George Padmore and C.L.R. James and Arthur Lewis had a real impact on global economic development. Do you think if we don't take into account the economic necessities of these arguments and the kind of political practicalities behind it, Pan-Africanism uh, is at risk of being almost confined to culture and commodified whilst neoliberal practices go ahead? Would you would you agree with that? Or do you think that we can fully engage with Pan-Africanism on, on its political and economic grounds? 
I think today uh, the reality is actually going forward with uh, with Pan-African plans in a way, uh, in the sense that you see regional, for instance, cooperation in uh, various matters like going forward and actually accelerate in the last 20 years, I'd say. So even if it's maybe not defined as Pan-Africanism, it still plays a, a big role. We see that happening ever than before. I think now the African continent is more Pan-African now than it was in the 1960s, paradoxically, in the sense that absolutely uh, really uh, things more going forward because people actually uh, embrace this idea that indeed uh, in the world market, in the world uh, political situation, etc., you got to cooperate, you get to stick together. And to the point that we have talks in East Africa, for instance, of creating federation, creating a, a monetary union, creating a situation in which you have a supranational entity possibly happening in a few years. So it's not confined, absolutely not confined to cultural aspects or philo- philosophy or... There is also that, there is still a debate, uh, like philosophically speaking, going on. Ghana, again, is a very interesting case study in that respect. My current research project tries to look at African neoliberalism and what neoliberal development uh, looked like. It's interesting to see how these Pan-African ideas are picked up and used by Jerry Rawlings uh, after his coup. Um, he sort of styles himself as a, as a revolutionary, but then negotiates loans with the World Bank and the IMF. And he's sort of puts himself in the market as a, well, initially he was very dismissive of Pan-Africanism and then at the end he sort of embraced Pan-Africanism. And, and Matteo is absolutely right. I mean, there's there used to be a lot of talk about Pan-Africanism and people were very dismissive of it. But I think paradoxically, the international pressures that come with uh, the neoliberal project have actually forced a lot of politicians to just face facts and uh, understand that if if they're not going to uh, thrive together, they're going to uh, collapse uh, separately. Is that, isn't that one of the uh, quotes of Nkrumah himself? Like Nkrumah said the, the independence of Ghana was pointless unless it was linked up with African unification. So I think I think that's the point that you're kind of getting to, and that now it's almost becoming a practical necessity for unification within within neoliberal Africa. Um, would, you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the ideological side of the project has actually paradoxically become less and less important. Uh, I think it's, I mean, it's less and less about creating a unity of, of African peoples uh, in the face of colonial oppression and as a solution for, you know, mental colonization and, and dealing with the wounds of colonialism. Uh, now it's, this, I mean, I think the project in a way has been stripped of its ideological content and is now really seen as, you know, economies of scale. You create an economy mm. of scale, you'll create, uh, your GDP will rise. It's, it's become a very cold calculation in a sense. On, on the other end, there might be also cultural dimensions to it, because I, I mentioned the East African Federation and there is talks about uh, making a Swahili, for instance, uh, the international language that will be used in the East African Federation. Uh, fair enough. Uh, and that would be a Pan-Africanist dream to see an African language to be elevated, to become an international language so widely spoken to become important internationally. We'll see, I guess. Yeah, we're, we're historians. We're better about the past than we are about the present. Going, going back to the past, then, when ideology was seen as really important to the decolonization process, can we talk a bit about the different sort of visions of unity that existed between African leaders? We mentioned Nkrumah obviously had a rapid approach towards the necessity of Pan-Africanism, um, but can we talk about maybe some of the other states uh, like Tanzania and Kenya and how they 
sought to achieve the Pan-African dream, if you will? Start just by saying that, um, first of all, you have to take in consideration that there are roughly three big families of uh, African states after uh, the post-colonial, I mean, after independence, that is African capitalism, African socialism, and Afro-Marxism. These are the three big, big families, let's say, that been defined mostly by Crawford Young in his 1982 Ideology and Development in Africa book. Uh, and uh, one could say that all of them, in one way or another, were based on the idea of development. Uh, development was the main uh, purpose of uh, all these regimes. And in fact, uh, all of them, uh, they, uh, they included, uh, in one way or another, the of African unity as a necessity. There were a few regimes which actually believed in the Pan-Africanist project. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, uh, as defined by Frederick Cooper, they actually believed in that before uh, the nation state uh, idea. So as I said, Nkrumah believed in this sort of way forward to a united African continent from a political standpoint. There were others like Nyerere who preferred the sort of step-by-step -step process through regional unions and then uh, going towards a unification process onwards. So in general, we, we can talk about those people that wanted a political union for starters and uh, those others that only talked about a economic cooperation sort of thing, uh, uh, mostly based on the, on the example put up by the uh, European Union during that period. So you, you can see on the one hand, uh, the European Union, on the other hand, uh, the ideal of the United States of Africa, even if there were different means to achieve that generic goal. And we don't see a division of uh, projects only only theoretically speaking, but we see actually attempts to uh, create uh, unions even during independ the independence period. We see like examples here and there of uh, attempts to create a real Pan-Africanist union. One example is the Ghana, Guinea, Mali union, which existed officially between 1958 and 1963, and then the East African community between 1967 and 1977. So we see in practice different attempts to put uh, Pan-Africanism into practice with, uh, with concrete applications. We see also different interpretations uh, in, in the way you approached uh, basically international politics questions like, for instance, the Congo crisis. So on the other hand, we, we see different visions of African unity as applied to international politics. Uh, by um, by groups of African states, as soon as they are independent, basically the, the, the African states divide themselves among ideological lines and uh, tactical lines. Uh, and we have uh, indeed the Ca uh, Casablanca group. We have the uh, Morovia group, uh, which which also includes in itself Brazzaville group. And, uh, uh, and so this division is also as a, a meaning on how to apply the concept of African unity, the cooperation between African states in uh, international settings. In the specific case of, uh, for instance, the Congo crisis, how do we approach the intervention of foreign powers in, uh, in an African setting? Do we organize ourselves with a Peace Corp to, yes, to solve uh, international issues? And uh, uh, how do we talk to the UN? How do we organize inter uh, ourselves internationally, standing between the, the two superpowers and their possible intervention in African politics? So there are many questions in which you have uh, different visions of African Union playing out in the independence period, in, in the immediate aftermath of the independence period. So this situation, once again, goes out from Congresses 
and uh, plays out in international politics very soon. And there are these visions of African unity playing out in uh, concrete politics in, uh, in the African continent. So within within African nationalism, you have you have these different ideas, regionalist approach, more continental approach. And then often, you know, the the divide between politics and economics follow similar lines. Right. There's sort of disagreements Mm -hmm. in that area. But then and this is also in the book, uh, there are visions of African unity that are put forward by uh, by the imperial project, the Central African Federation. Uh, is is a, a federation that is uh, created by uh, by British settlers in uh, in Zimbabwe in present day Zimbabwe so uh, Rhodesia uh, Rhodesia Zambia uh, in that in that area of of Africa already before, before the 1960s but what you then have happened in in the aftermath of decolonization is that this ideal of a white united Africa is something that comes back and uh, is sort of explored with varying degrees of success, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that this was a, a Chris Saunders, who's, of course, the giant in the field of, of Southern African history, in his contribution, points out how uh, South Africa uh, actually sought to form a, a white type of, of African unity, maybe with the Portuguese, maybe with Rhodesia. Uh, and one moment in which this, this notion of white unity is almost realized is when uh, Rhodesia, which becomes independent, really sees its chance to form a unity with the uh, independent uh, Katanga, uh, which secedes from Congo in the course of the Congo crisis. And then there's really sort of a, a moment when also a lot of international observers think that this might actually happen, that they might create this huge white settler mining union, right? So you even have those visions of African unity that exist. So we often equate African unity, and rightly so, with African nationalism. But African unity has its origins in the colonial project and is continued by white settlers uh, with much less of a success, I would argue, right? Uh, I think politically, ideologically, uh, obviously African nationalism has really uh, taken taken the African unification project uh, as its flagship program and, and really made it its own. Yeah. In a way, South Africa succeeds in uh, being a regional power and absorbing its an economy. If Through the mandate territories. Yeah, a few yeah. actually black independent states. So uh, they actually... Oh, in that sense. In a, so yeah, this is this is another interesting example. If if I if I might interject, uh, the South African uh, president makes the analogy that apartheid is actually like the European Union. Mm-hmm. He like consciously referenced the European Union and saying, uh, you know, within South Africa we have these apartheid territories. They are economically independent, politically independent, and we like choose to form like a union like the European Union. Uh, again, referring to sort of a unity idea, which is, of course, a, a perverse interpretation of the African unity idea. Uh, so, yeah, Matteo, absolutely. So that's another iteration of African, African unity. There's this African nationalist idea, regionalist uh, continental. There's this imperial uh, imperial unity idea rooted in colonialism, mainly aimed at, cr- at increasing the economic output of the colonies. And then there's these white federation ideas, which can be external, South African uh, federation with areas like uh, Katanga or Rhodesia, or even internal, where South Africa makes the claim that they're actually an example of African unity because they have uh, all these apartheid uh, territories that they form a voluntary union with. And all these things emerge and are part of the book. 
uh, one last thing that is mentioned by Jumbia and uh, the youth in their chapter is that, uh, in a way, uh, Pan-Africanism sometimes also is deeply rooted in, uh, in a way, if one considers Pan-Africanism as this vague term that defines the unity of African people. Uh, sometimes history itself, the African, African history itself uh, uh, plays an important role uh, in uh, uniting different communities and uh, underlining the, 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 the importance of, uh, of uh, interconnections of uh, African people in the continent. So for many, for many anthropologists and uh, social scientists, etc., if they observe uh, African communities uh, along like uh, different borders uh, in the African continent, they see like... Uh, connections that go back hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, they see like a, a deeply rooted conception of uh, exchange and unity among different peoples in uh, different countries. So in a way, there is this dimension too. It's, it's one of the arguments that, that uh, both authors make in their contribution on Senegal, that this, uh, that, uh, that Senegal and Mali, that the communities that live along these borders uh, consider these borders to be irrelevant and um, marry across borders, trade across borders just doesn't exist. And that's one of the most interesting contributions of the book in a way. That sort of brings me to, to my next question. When you when you were mentioning these connections that go back and are tied through Pan-Africanism, that is obviously severed with the imposition of the nation state upon colonialism and decolonization as well. Um, so using this political model of the nation state, do you believe that you can achieve African political unity and, and economic unity as well? That again, uh, the, the nation state in some cases was actually accepted just because it was there already. So if you go back to, if we go back to Kwame Nkrumah himself, he was a very utilitarian person. I mean, mm-hmm. he, was, he faced himself with uh, the power that uh, the United Ghana could give him to have a voice in African politics and used it. And he actually contributed to the establishment of a nationalism in, the, in Ghanaian nationalism. He was not only a Pan-Africanist theoretician and uh, politician, but he was also a nationalist. And he created uh, this vague- Ghanaian nationalism, Ghanaian. Ghanaian nationalism was Pan-African. That's, mm-hmm. that's something yeah. very interesting. So uh, Nkrumah never talks about Ghana as a, you know, as a Ghanaian nation. He talks about Ghana as the Pan-African nation. It's a very interesting conception of African politics. Going back to what, what we sort of pointed out earlier, that, is, that on the African continent, right? There's, often when we talk about Africa, it is pointed out that there are many African peoples and that you shouldn't refer to the continent uh, as, as just Africa. But Actually, when we talk about African politics, there is this African polity that a lot of African leaders consciously refer to. And Kruma is was very good at this. Uh, he, he, he very consciously put up Ghana as the quintessential Pan-African nation. That, that is true. But what I wanted to underline was the fact that, uh, on the other hand, he also uh, pushed very much forward towards uh, centralization of the Ghanaian states. So if we look only at the Ghanaian uh, you know, national state, he also worked towards, uh, first of all, before you know, going to the international sphere, he also worked for centralizing the states, uh, avoiding any federal- federalism, etc., uh, outlawing any regional and uh, religious fighting against tribalism and all these kind of things, uh, and uh, in general, trying to keep the nation state together as much as possible. 
because he thought that was uh, a necessary step towards uh, Pan-African Union. So I think in many cases, the element of the nation state was just uh, a considered a useful instrument. And, and I think nobody really probably believed in the uh, nation state as it was presented after independence, but they had to use it as an instrument for sometimes power, sometimes, you know, like control of the territory and all these kind of things. So I think nobody really ever thought about going back. And that is the paradox of, uh, you know, like the independence process, etc. Nobody really thought about uh, putting uh, the, the nation state coming out of colonialism into question. Nobody really talked about going to the pre-colonial situation or they had the nation state ready for them and they used it. And, and that, I think that brings us to, to the mo- one of the more, most interesting points is that uh, African nationalism, in a way, the African nation state could not exist without Pan-Africanism. Mm. As, as, as Matteo pointed out, Pan-Africanism was often used, you know, some would say disingenuously, but I don't know if that's even true, right? But, but Pan-Africanism was often used as a way to paper over a lot of the differences, real differences that existed within the nation state. Ghana was a good example of this, but the former Belgian Congo, the then independent Congo in 1960, it is no coincidence that Lumumba ends up at the Pan-African Congress, embraces Pan-Africanism as an ideology because it's the ideal way to unite Mm -hmm. a a country that is incredibly divided along uh, ethnic lines with hundreds of languages. Uh, And this this goes for a lot of African countries. And Nerere does the same. Uh, In Zambia, Kaunda does the same. Um, so this, this conscious appeal to uh, Pan-Africanism and African unity isn't directed against the African nation state. In a way, it's a necessity for the African nation state to exist. That's really important and that the, there's almost too many differences to, to try and to create separate nation states different to what has been colonially imposed. And like you said, Matteo, they are, they are not seen as important political factions but within that is there a fear of Nkrumah's imperialism or the fear of one leader uh, of an African state using the sort of guise of pan-Africanism to create a centralization of power underneath them is that a fear or is pan-Africanism used more as as an ideology which which allows for loads of disparate views uh, within within the OAU well, of course, uh, Kwame Nkrumah was actually accused of uh, actually, uh, you know, looking for to, to become the dictator of the United States of Africa. And in fact, uh, Nkrumah could be accused of such thing because he was talking about a, a, a one-party state for the African continent. So <laughs> he was talking, uh, he was already like picturing a sort of uh, a, a strange type of African union. But um, on the other end, uh, nobody really had the opportunity to, to, to get to that because the OAU in 1963 was created on purpose, purposely to, to be weak and to be, you know, very not political, very much about uh, a, a, like loose economic cooperation, etc. just to avoid that. Uh, the question of sovereignty of uh, African states was central to the, to the debates about um, Pan-Africanism uh, in the early 1960s. And for the majority, all African states, uh, I'd say mostly the Frank- Francophone ones, but not only the Francophone ones, were actually scared of uh, losing control over their uh, sovereignty, and that was uh, one of the the, the main uh, points of uh, of opposition. But you see the same thing in the European Union as well. I mean, states are actually scared of losing sovereignty. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I can make this even I can make this even more complicated uh, if if you want to. So the um, Leopold Senghor, so the leader of Senegal, who uh, up until Senegal's full independence uh, in 1960-61, a pleas for uh, a union with France, he he literally calls Nkrumah. Uh, a black imperialist and the Ghanaians uh, African imperialists because um, his reasoning is he calls himself an African socialist as well like Nkrumah but his, his definition of African socialism is very uh, complex so for Senghor uh, imperialism was wrong uh, not because of because of the imposition of European rule on Africa because there there were many benefits that came with the European presence in his reasoning namely civilization the French language so he thinks French civilization is a benefit of imperialism his problem with imperialism is is capitalism is the exploitation by Europeans of African peoples that is what he thinks is wrong with uh, with imperialism so his solution, for the post-colonial state is we need to um, we need to get rid of, of of capitalism. African socialism is a solution for this, and then we can still have uh, we can still have a connection with France and with Europe to keep the exchange of cultures going. Like that's his conception. His view is that Nkrumah, in that sense, is an is an imperialist, somebody who wants to impose his rules and ideas on Africans in return for for nothing. So um, you, here you have two leaders who both conceptualize themselves as African socialists, but have a very different conception of what that means with very different implications for uh, African unity. So there's, when, I think it's interesting when we talk about uh, African, it's, it's good that you invited both of us in a way, because I think it's, it's interesting when we talk about African unity as a project, there's always this internal and external dimension. And there's always this sort of uh, external dimension of, of African unity, the debate we have as it relates to international relations, European affairs, political project. But then there's always a dimension where you start digging a little bit deeper and you see all these uh, divides where Pan-Africanism is used on a national and even on a regional level. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's interesting how that works. Yeah, just to, to push that further, um, just a wee bit, um, within uh, the Ivory Coast, Hupoi uh, Boigny sort of fully accepts um, a capitalist mode of, of development and seeks to, seeks to maintain strong relationships with, with France. How does, how does that sort of throw a spanner into the works of the Pan-Africanist project? Are um, African capitalists sort of dragged into the socialist model of, of development or are they, are they still able to um, proceed with the, these kind of colonial relationships that existed beforehand? I mean, I, I think it's wrong to conceptualize um, what these African, these French African leaders were doing as a continuation of colonialism. I think that that in itself is sort of a caricature. I mean, I'm not saying that that is what you're no, that is what you're suggesting. But I think if 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 we're if you if we want to talk about about what this is, uh, I mean, African capitalism and African socialism were two a genuine different model for African development. Uh, there's this, there's this uh, moment where Nkrumah visits uh, Ivory Coast, uh, a moment that, uh, that uh, Paul Nugent put for, puts forward in his book, where both leaders um, sort of agree to have a wager to see which model will uh, provide the, the most development and will be sort of the best model for African modernization. Um, so, so both of these, both of these models um, were genuine 
uh, African solutions to African problems. So I don't think one model was was sort of dragged in with the next. Um, uh, they were just different ideological projects put forward by different people who had genuine ideological ideas. Even uh, you know, even, there's often this sort of sense of putting people like Leopold Senghor or the leader of the Ivory Coast in sort of the, the neo-colonial caricature. Uh, but that is, I mean, when you go to the archives and you, you see how many, I mean, so people who, are, who would only be in it for the neo-colonial benefits wouldn't write, wouldn't write uh, shelves and shelves full, full of books uh, that try and sort of figure out the, difficult, uh, the difficulty that they struggle with. Because I mean, they, people like Sanger also struggle with how to reconcile African independence with with this sort of continuous continuous legacy of colonialism, it's just that Nkrumah and Senghor both have different responses to the same challenge. So I don't think one model is sort of is dragged into the the other. If, if I may, I I'd also say that uh, we we talked about like a, a a more ideological version of Pan Africanism and more like a practical political side of it, and uh, in a way, uh, well, Ufoe Bonnie can uh, can be considered one of those that actually used a sort of Pan African plans in practice, even even if. Maybe he was not like the most uh, vocal supporter of Pan-Africanism. And in fact, you see him first being one of the main protagonists of all the season of the Ressemblement Démocratique Africain, the RDA, uh, between the mid-1940s and uh, you know, the late 1950s. So you see actually him working with uh, a wider party for, for French Africa. And then you see him like creating networks of collaboration with other French former colonies uh, immediately before or after independence, like the Conseil de l'Entente, and then afterwards with uh, being like one of the uh, promoters of the Brazzaville group, uh, of the Moravia group, etc., etc., La Francophonie, his role like in international organization coordinating African states. So I don't see, uh, I don't see, for instance, even if one considers Pan-Africanism as a, uh, you know, like a only related to the radicals, etc. I don't see someone like Ufoe Boni as very much isolated, as very much only a nationalist of the Ivory Coast, like a suprematist of the Ivory Coast. Um, Absolutely. Uh, to all the other nations. But in fact, he was very much a player in the international stage of the of the uh, African continent internationally, like connecting. Of course, he wanted also to connect these networks of African states with Europe, with the Western world. But, but on the other hand, he wanted cooperation. He wanted to use unity as a tool for, for politics. So once again, sometimes we see Pan-Africanism actually playing out, even if it's not spelled outright in the way Nkrumah did. We, even in the first phase, actually, we see even uh, somebody we, you will never uh, 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 associate with Pan-Africanism, like Tubman of Liberia, being involved in talks about Pan-African Union or Union of West African States, etc. So Tubman actually had sort of a had a very underdeveloped notion of of African uh, of African unity. He sort of puts forward like a an African development program where Liberia would sort of act as a as like a beneficiary for other African countries. But he's never indeed really included in 
uh, in these political conversations. But even even this Tupman is, um, I think if we want to take your words, uh, Paul, uh, I think it's more accurate to say that whatever project you put forward in an African political context, somehow you get dragged into a discussion about African unity. Yeah. That's the most and, uh, accurate, yeah. the accurate description. There, of the there are very, very few examples of states that are completely cut out from the, mm. you know, like this idea of a supranational, uh, at least like coordination, collaboration. So on that then, uh, or is the individual ideology of the states important to to the Pan-African project um, when, when they seem to kind of have the the same overall goal of uh, African development and kind of like you like you said earlier, Frank, like a, an economy of scale. Um, does does the difference of ideology among the states? Um, I suppose is that really important today when when discussing um, themes of kind of African political and economic development? Um, I mean, the, the past shapes the present, right? So, um, I mean, we can take Ghana as an example again, right? The way Ghanaian politics is set up now um, is that there's, um, there is, I mean, I noticed this when I was there, there were sort of elections there and the, the CPP, so Nkrumah's original party, I mean, Matteo is the, the ultimate expert here, right? But I mean, it's a very small, non-significant party anymore. It doesn't really have any weight. But you can see the, uh, these other parties uh, still being forced to have a conversation with a guy who's been dead for how many decades now? These nationalist leaders who put forward very powerful visions of the future uh, are, are still alive and alive and well in political debate. Uh, so I think those those ideological divisions matter, but they've they've of course transformed in in that that people in the fifties would not have recognized. Uh, if if you would have showed them to them, but they they come up in in discussions. Um, I mean, and this is not right. This is not an African thing. I mean, look at the United Kingdom. This perpetual reference to the Second World War uh, in in everything that happens. You know, not a, if if a street floods, somebody will come out and say, "Well, we've survived the blitz." Uh, so of of course, uh, ideologies matter in in African politics and in continental politics as they do everywhere. I'd say that ideology was very, very essential in African politics just in the 1950s, 60s, maybe a little bit in the 70s, but uh, then afterwards it became less and less important. But on the other end, these talks about African unity became ingrained uh, in the in any African political discussion. So even if ideology ideologies maybe died out, Pan-Africanism just kept you know, looming around uh, and is still very strong, I think, everywhere. So, so just to, to summarize then, um, back to the book, what are the, what are the, could you summarize the main key lessons that you would like to, the reader to get from, from these collection of essays on new perspectives on uh, African unification and Pan-Africanism? So I think, uh, as, as we already uh, uh, pointed out, I think the main one of the main messages of the book is um, uh, open up African archives and utilize them in the theoretically well thought out manner. Uh, appreciate that the opening up of archives and also, uh, also you know, we have other contributions as well. Uh, uh, we have uh, legal scholars, we have, uh, we have legal scholars and we have uh, political scientists who are all... Um, looking at, at the innovations that have happened in the past 20 years in uh, African IR, 
in uh, in African legal theory, and we're trying to incorporate these things into their work. Uh, but for us as historians, um, our our main takeaway is utilize the African archives in a in a uh, in a theoretically thought out way. That's one key message of the book. And uh, and of course, the fact that there are political scientists and uh, involved, etc., also tells you the importance of making uh, historians and uh, political scientists in a dialogue together because one helps the other to understand better uh, the, the, the whole issue. And I think this, um, I wanted, at first I wanted to make only a history book, but then when we transformed it into an interdisciplinary book, I think it became even stronger because it is important to understand uh, the difference, uh, and that that I think is one of the the, uh, the the major selling point of the book is this dialogue between history and uh, uh, current politics, political science, uh, and uh, type of analysis that uh, um, discuss uh, the situation of African um, Pan Africanism now. Uh, because, uh, for instance, when you talk about uh, uh, the, the establishment of a human rights commission uh, in the African Union. And you have to think about uh, all the discussions that happened throughout history about what is African in terms of, uh, you know, philosophical uh, and uh, legal unity amongst different African systems. So how do we define what is African in terms of uh, legality and etc.? You have to go back in time about all the discussions that happened throughout history. So I think this book's sort of shows, show you, you know, all these uh, discussions playing out through time. And that I think is, uh, is important. I, I think uh, um, an additional takeaway or, or, I mean, besides use African archives, work interdisciplinary, I think the obvious one is our, our stress on our, our emphasis on African agency. And I mean, it's, it's still, it's still strange that in this day and age, we still have to say something uh, in, along the lines of take African ideas seriously, because these people, um, these politicians uh, on the African continent, like European politicians, like uh, uh, US politicians, had uh, ideologies that were, you know, that were very complex, uh, and they uh, were very keen on, on, making those ideologies uh, in turning those ideologies into a material reality even today in in 2021 um it's still easy to find a book that uh, focuses on the continent but then um ultimately talks about african unity as a failed project as a utopian vision that uh, influenced international relations or made the the entry of the cold war into the into into the continent more easy um, which, uh, which in in our I think in our view, um, and I'm also speaking for Matteo, is a is is just is just incorrect. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. It it um, what but Africanism was and African unity was was a fully fledged ideology that interacted uh, with other ideas that were floating around and changed those ideas for better or for worse. So, uh, archi- African archives, interdisciplinary work, and African agency. Okay, uh, I would I would add another thing uh, mm-hmm. is that we we tried uh, as much as possible to to include uh, the widest the, the, the widest you know like geographical type of uh, work uh, that was uh, available uh, so to cover uh, as much as many parts of the continent as possible and also 
uh, and that I think is one good uh, result that we got. So we, we, we managed basically to cover different issues in diff different parts of the continent, different time periods, et cetera. And that I think is it's very good because it's a very complex uh, thing to do. Uh, of course, a perfect book would have been uh, like 2,000 pages or 3,000 pages. We had to, you know, make it made a selection, but I think this selection was very uh, effective. And also, uh, more importantly, uh, we haven't covered only the um, uh, institutional part of Pan-Africanism. We haven't talked only about high politics, but we also talked about grassroots. We also talked about... Uh, non-formal uh, diplomatic uh, discussions about uh, different visions of African unity happening, for instance, in liberation movements, uh, among uh, circles of intellectuals, poets, uh, among the grassroots. So not only considering, say, you know, the official diplomacy, uh, the OAU as an institution, etc., but also what was going on in the, in the continent, in the other circles. Pan-Africanism was very ingrained in any political discussion that was going on at some point in the continent. That's what we wanted to also highlight. Thank you so much, guys. I'll end it there. Um, so thanks again to Frank and Matteo um, for their discussion. The new book, Visions of African Unity, New Perspectives on the History of Pan-Africanism and African Unification Projects, is available on Palgrave on March 13th, 2021. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.